0: Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, this morning, looking at Revelation chapter 22, what we're talking about is the reward of the King. And um, at the top of your handout there, a quote from Augustine, and let me just, uh, let me make a a small little apology before we ever start and look at that handout. I, I make the handout, I send it off to somebody who edits, form, edit, edits it for me, you see why they need to do it. Um, and uh, and then I print it usually. And what I did this last week is there was a couple lines I wanted to add, and so I accidentally grabbed the unedited version, added to that, and so you're gonna find some typos. I'm um, just gonna let you know that right now. But uh, the, the quote from Augustine, or Augustine, however you wanna say it, God himself... Who is the author of virtue shall be our reward. There is nothing greater or better than God Himself. He has promised us Himself. God shall be the end of all of our desires, who will be seen without end, loved without cloy uh, or lacking, just be perfect love, and praised without weariness. And so when you hear something like that, God will be our greatest reward, or seeing God is our greatest reward, you might go, oh, that sounds kind of spiritual. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe it sounds like. Am I am I not supposed to enjoy the things of this life? Am I only supposed to look forward to when I see God face to face and uh, there there's different sects of Christianity that have gone drawn that conclusion that like you know the things that we experience in this life they're kind of things to be watched out for. You know if if you if you go too far you're going to get into idolatry and that there's truth in that. But the the danger in saying that is maybe maybe I'm so afraid of um, going too far with things that I I don't enjoy life. Have you ever met somebody that they're claiming to follow God, but they just seem like they're always miserable? Um, they just kind of feel beat up, and they don't look like they're enjoying the things of this life very much. Uh, I want to tell you that's not a scriptural perspective. Uh, in fact, from First Timothy chapter six, we learn uh, that God richly provi- provides all things for us to enjoy them, and that the best way to enjoy what God has given us is actually to look at it as a a gift of grace from him and to then take what he's given us and enjoy it with other people Uh, to take what God has given us and, and use it as stewards to bless other people in our lives. Uh, the other thing we learned from the scriptures is that uh, the Jewish life, it was filled with feasts and Sabbath days. Those were regular parts of their calendar. So once a week, they had a Sabbath day that was set aside to hang out with family, spend time focused on God, uh, worship him, have a good meal, enjoy some wine, uh, go for a walk, you know, all these uh, wonderful things that they would do with their Sabbath day. And then the feasts of the of that per- time period, uh, they had several feasts throughout the year and they were major parties, but it was a party of saying, look. At how God has blessed us and let's enjoy his blessings together. Um, I had a couple people say, You think there's gonna be wine in heaven? Let me just read you this verse from Isaiah chapter 25. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all his people a feast of choice meat, a feast of aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. Man, that sounds pretty good. He's gonna do barbecue and the best wine you've ever tasted. Um I want to go to that restaurant. In fact, if he needs a cook, I'm available. You know, you get to taste it more that way. Um, But I think we we make a mistake when we look at, uh, you know, maybe maybe these things of the world they're dangerous and we should break away from them before they come become an idol. And I do think it's careful. You know, like the scripture tells us, if if your eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out. So if you have something that's makes you sin. I mean, if being around alcohol causes you to sin and be drunk and controlled by it, then that's probably better you're not around it. Um, but it, but, but it, that's, that's a weakness within us, not a strength. Um, it would be strength within us to be able to enjoy what God has given us and, and live a life that people look at and they go, that, that's appealing. Now, here they are. These are people that are connected to God. They're saved by his grace and they're enjoying his grace. And what I want to show you in this passage that we're going to look at is that is what the new heaven and the new earth is. Uh, If you weren't with us last week and you missed Revelation chapter 21, the end of it there, I encourage you to go back and watch that message. There's so many awesome things that God has promised for us in the new heaven and the new earth and this amazing city that he's preparing for us, the new Jerusalem, uh, the city of peace. But I think we need to understand that life is fullest when we gratefully love God by taking pleasure in what He's made, honoring His plan for creation, and enjoying and joining others to do the same. So we say, God, thank you for what you've made. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for the material possessions that I have. Thank you for the house that I live in. Thank you that I don't live outside and there's a fireplace in my house, right? Like we're, we're grateful for what he's given us and then we use our house and we use what God has given us, our, the material blessings, our wealth, our talents, our abilities. We use those things as, as an act of worship. We actually worship as we take on these different things and we do so by thanking God and blessing others with those things. And so it's important that Christ is preeminent because if he's not first, then we'll end up worshiping created things instead of him. Um, A quote that's attributed to G.K. Chesterton, it says, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing, but worships everything. Um, And so that's something that we need to watch out for. But if God is first, then everything in your life, uh, you think about the, the, the feast days and, and the things that are good in life, food and wine and music and dancing and games and prayer and worship and gratitude for God's blessings. You know, God created sex, right? And when we, when we have sex inside of what God's boundaries are, it's a beautiful thing. You take it outside of it and it's like fire, somebody's going to get hurt. God, God created possessions and, and wealth and all the things of this world and were, they're made to be enjoyed but not worshiped. And so, my goal this morning is to show you what is described in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, this new heaven, this new earth, this city of peace, Jerusalem. They are what they are because God is at the center of everything and everyone. It is, God is at the center of everything within the new creation, and He is at the center of every heart, every person, every one that indwells the new creation. And the other thing I'd like you to see is that we don't have to wait to experience this. This isn't something that you go, well, I can't wait till I die and I get out of this place, um, this miserable, horrible body and, and world that I'm in. But instead, God has called us to love the life that we have here and now by practicing the same things that we'll practice in heaven. By practicing an attitude of looking towards him and being grateful for what he's given us, of looking to the cross and being thankful for salvation of Jesus's death on our behalf, uh, looking to his resurrection and understanding that in that we have new life. And then because we have new life, everything that we possess and everything that God puts in our path and every person that God has us interact with can have eternal purpose. It can have lasting meaning. And so we don't wait for heaven as though uh, the, the earthly life that we have is, is terrible, but we enjoy life on earth now with the same mindset that will inhabit heaven. And I think that's important for us to understand. And so that's my goal for us this morning. Will you pray with me and then we'll we'll read these verses together. So Father, we thank you for the life that you've given us here and now. Um, Though this world is broken and sin has entered it, that through the choices of humanity, we have caused there to be pain and death and sickness and grief, and there's so many things that are against your will that we have brought into this world. The problem of evil is not a problem with you, it's a problem with us, and yet we know that you have solved the problem of evil for us. Because when your son Jesus went to the cross, he died to soak up all the evil within us, to pay for it once and for all, to cleanse us and wash us and make us new, to to take our sin and our brokenness away and then to rise from the dead and give us new life. And so we glory in what your son has done for us. We're grateful for what Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. And God, because of what he's accomplished, will you teach us, will you guide us to live our lives here on earth as though we were in heaven. Um, Now we're going to experience back sets and we're going to experience things that that drag us away from you, but help us to see the life that you have stored up for us in heaven and to live it to the fullest ability that we can as we trust you here and now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read these five verses and then we'll, we'll take them apart. So Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 says, then he, that's an angel, showed me, that's John, the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign with him. Well, they will reign forever and ever. And so I want to show you the rewards of the king within this passage. And the first one is that we will have, it will actually be right down the middle of the city that God has called us to inhabit, the water of life. And so water within Jewish worship, and it's important for us to understand that John is a Jewish person. He followed a Jewish Messiah named Jesus. They both lived an Old Testament life. And so most of the imagery that is within the book of Revelation is right out of the Old Testament. And so when we talk about the water of life, the symbolic importance for Jewish people, it revolved around ritual cleansing, proper worship, and life. So even at the synagogue, um, they would have a a bowl, a laver outside of it, and there would be living water running through this bowl. And what living water is, is it's running. It's not getting stagnant. um, It's not getting gross, but it's constantly moving so that it's fresh. And so they would go up to this bowl and they would wash. And it was a ritual cleansing before they entered into the synagogue to hear God's word, to pray, to worship, to do those things. Some churches have Grab that from the Old Testament, and a lot of churches you'll go to, they'll have water outside of the church, and you, you do this ritual cleansing before you go in. Um, and that was the idea behind water, as there was a, a ritual cleansing, a washing away of sin before you went into God's house, before you went into God's presence. And so that's where proper worship comes into this. We have to understand that if we're going to worship God properly, we have to recognize our sin. Um, we don't just waltz into God's presence thinking that there's no issues to deal with. We understand that we have sinned against him, that we've broken our relationship with him, that we've rebelled against him, and in order to go into God's presence, there's a cleansing that has to take place, okay? And so that's, that's important for us to recognize that though God loves us as we are, he's not going to leave us as we are. Uh, though God cares for us and he pursues us and he wants to have relationship with us, he doesn't say, I'm going to leave you in your sin." No, the truth of the gospel and the importance of Jesus's death on the cross is it's not a ritual cleansing, but his blood on the cross washes our sin away once and for all. So instead of going through a ritual process, we are spiritually cleansed once for all by Jesus's death on the cross. And so because of that, we can approach God with a sense of boldness, not because we've cleansed ourselves, but because of God's grace and his mercy, Jesus's death on the cross, our sin has been washed away. And so when we look to the Old Testament, there's imagery that we see here in the book of Revelation, but ultimately what that imagery is pointing to is Christ. The ritual cleansings, the washing away of sin, it all pointed to a Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, who would die on the cross and take our sins away, wash us clean once and for all. And I want you to hear this. If you're hungry for a relationship with God, you must be cleansed. That's what Jesus tells Peter when he's washing the disciples' feet and he goes around and he takes this position of a lowly servant and he washes the disciples' feet and Peter says, Lord, you're not gonna wash my feet. This is, this is too low of a position for you. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you can have no part with me. And Peter says, then wash all of me. Right? I want to be cleansed. I want to be close to you. I want relationship with you. Listen to me. If you want relationship with God, you must be cleansed. Your sin has to be dealt with. And if you haven't made a decision to trust in Jesus, listen to me, he saved you from the consequences of sin. When he died on the cross, he washed away your sin, past, present, and future. When he rose from the dead, he promised you new life. And so would you like to be forgiven? Would you like to be close to God? Would you like new life? I I encourage you to trust Jesus today. Uh, The other thing that we look at this is that it brings, it brings life. Jeremiah chapter two, Jeremiah says that uh, the, the Jewish people, what they had done is they had traded living water for stale cisterns. Um, I don't know if you've ever been around water that sits for a long time and you walk up to it. The first thing you do, you you don't think, give me a glass, right? (laughs) That's just not what you do because you understand that if you grab that water and you drink it, what's going to happen? It's going to make you sick. I mean, it's water, and it'll maybe quench your thirst for a little bit, but in the end, it's going to make you sick. And Jeremiah's point is that is what idolatry does. It promises you life, but in the end, it makes you sick. That's what worshiping a created thing over God does. It promises you life, but in the end, it makes you sick. And so that's what happens when we take something that's created good things. We take, we take alcohol, we take sex, we take uh, these good things that exist around us, food, we take these good things that God has given us for enjoyment and we make them an ultimate thing. They promise life in that moment, but in the end they make you sick. And so God's design is so important because if we're gonna, if we're gonna take what God has given us as blessings and live in those things to the fullest, then he has to be first so that we don't harm ourselves. And so we turn to him for living water, not created things. And that's what this river running down the middle of the street is about. The point here is that heaven is a place that's centered on close proximity to God, the worship of him and life that enjoys God and his ways. Uh, The other thing I want to tell you is that if, if if you don't enjoy God and his ways, you won't like heaven because that is all that exists in heaven is God and his ways. All of the broken, all of the other ways of life, life, all of the other ways of approaching life, they do not exist there. And so a lot of people think, well, how can God send people to hell? Oh, it's because it's where they want to be. They don't want him or his ways. And so to reject God and his ways is to say that you would prefer to live in a place without him and his ways. And that's what hell is. It's the absence of God. And when the absence of God is is in this place, that is described as the lake of fire in the previous chapter, uh, the reason it's a lake of fire is because the, the evil within humanity and fallen angelic beings has no restraint. God is not there and there is no one to restrain the evil brokenness of humanity or fallen angelic beings. And that's why it's such a terrible place. And so, we need to understand this, that this is what heaven is about. It's this water of life. There's uh, people that are cleansed and their approach to God is right. They recognize their sin and their need of a savior and have trusted Jesus. And they're experiencing life by turning themselves over to his lead and his guidance and his ways. They want him and his ways. The next thing that's within heaven here, this new city called Jerusalem, the city of peace, uh, the, the tree of life is on either side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. Now, the tree of life within the scriptures, uh, we recognize that within the Garden of Eden, there were two trees there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And what humanity did is they were deceived. Eve was deceived by the serpent and she ate from the tree of life. Adam, uh, the first man, he allowed this to take place. He, didn't, he did not serve or protect his wife and allowed this negative thing to happen. He wasn't there. He wasn't doing what God had called him to do. And Eve is deceived. And so because of that, uh, the tree of life is guarded humanity cannot access it. And what we see here in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is the Edenic perfection of human harmony with God is restored and perhaps multiplied. It's interesting, the tree is on either side of the river. I don't know if this is like one of those gigantic sequoias and somebody hollowed out the middle and the river's going on, I don't know. Or there's multiple trees going on, but the point behind it is that the the life of God is abundant in heaven and everyone is enjoying it. Uh, the, the word there for the healing of the nations, we get the, the English word therapeutic comes from that. It's the idea of complete well-being. Now, have you ever had a day or maybe just an hour where you felt like you had complete well-being? Everything was as it was supposed to be. You have, you have a strong connection with God. He, he's leading you. He's guiding you. You see everything that you have as a blessing from him. Uh, Maybe it's Easter or Christmas and we just have these moments where we mark on our calendar where we just are so grateful for who God is and what he's done. And then uh, based upon what he's blessed us with, we're then blessing other people and we're playing games with our friends and family and we're making memories. And you just get to an end of a day like that and you go, I I just feel like I had just a sense of complete well-being today. God says, how about that for eternity? How about every moment of all of eternity, that's your that's where you're centered. There's no sin, there's there's nothing blocking you from it. You're just constantly in this position where you go, I am whole because I am near the one who makes me whole. And and that's that's what God is saying to us about heaven. The other thing I want you to understand, you don't have to wait for that. That isn't something that that we have to wait for. We can experience that sense of peace, that harmony with God, that wholeness here and now. I understand we have fallen flesh and we have inclinations towards sin and we live in a world that's fallen and doesn't recognize God. And those things are distractions that would lead us away from the wholeness that Christ has purchased for us. But if you are in Christ, he has made you complete now. And we can enjoy the fullness of life now. Harmony with him, blessing other people, seeing what God has given us as secondary blessings to care for other people. The other thing that we see here is that the curse is no more. Now in Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 through 24, it describes the curse. Um, So after Adam and Eve fall, and they sin against God, and they reject his ways, and they determine good and evil for themselves, there's a curse that God gives. And one of the first things that we see that happens after sin enters, and this curse is there, is that people hide from God rather than seek his presence. That's one of the first things that happens when we're under the curse, is instead of seeking God's presence, we know that we're broken, we know that we're sinful, and so we we hide from him, thinking that we're busted. uh, Thinking that God is going to be angry with us and condemn us. And and so that's what people do when we find ourselves in sin or under the curse is we we hide from God rather than seek his presence. The next thing is that we blame and ridicule others rather than take responsibility. Um, God challenges Adam about what took place and he said, it was was the woman you gave me. It's not my fault. And so we do the same thing. We blame others. We don't take responsibility. Again, what's proper worship require? It requires that I recognize the brokenness within me, I take responsibility for what I have done wrong, and instead of blaming others, I recognize that Christ took that blame for me, and I've been cleansed of it, right? That's proper worship. That's a proper relationship with God. The next thing we see is that in the curse is that there's ongoing satanic deception rather than walking in light. Um, our minds and our approach to life it is deceived under the curse we believe the wrong things and without god stepping into our human history without christ we would not know what was right and what was wrong or be able to walk in the light and so there's this deception that's going on i want you to know uh, the other thing that that happens after the fall is that hostility between satan and humanity shows up and satan and his Fallen angelic beings, their goal is to keep you from being saved if you're not already. And if you are saved, his goal is that you would take no part in the salvation of others, right? So there's a, there's a satanic hostility towards humanity preventing or trying to prevent salvation, He's whispering. If you're not saved this morning, he's whispering little things in your ear, like you don't need Christ. He's whispering little things in your ear, like that guy on stage. Not only does he look funny, he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? Um, He's whispering little things in your ear, trying to keep you from approaching Christ and receiving salvation. And and you know what? Other the other thing that's going on is the Spirit of God is also speaking to you. If you're not saved this morning, and He's inviting you to be saved. He's calling you to salvation. And so don't walk out of here without responding to what God has. Don't let this hostility prevent you from receiving salvation today. Uh, the other things that we see within the, uh, the curse is there's painful effort to bear and raise children. I, I've had a kidney stone, but I know it's not the same. Okay. I'm not trying to say that, but I have tried to raise children and boy, do I hit my head against the wall some days. Um, but th- those are part of the curse. Uh, The other thing that we see here is that women would seek life in their husband rather than God. There's a little line in there that says that the woman would, her desire would be for her husband. And what that is saying is that uh, women are going to be put in a situation under the curse where they will look to a man to find their fulfillment. Uh, That they would look to a man rather than God to receive what they need to be whole okay? And so that, that's, if you're looking for another, listen to me, if you're married and you look at your husband and think, he's got everything I need, you already know that's not true. <laughs> your husband is a secondary blessing. But if you put the full weight, if you ask him to be what God is, he'll fall short. And so don't do that. Uh, the other thing that we see is that man becomes incapable of living up to this standard. And so when he falls short, he does some things, man. And we've seen this in human history. One of the things that man does is because the desire of a woman is for him, he subjugates wom- women and he makes them, him, instead of seeing a woman as a co-equal created in Christ, he subjugates her. Instead of seeing her as someone to be honored, he, he, uh, he objectifies her. Instead of looking at his wife and caring for her needs as a servant like Christ is, he ignores her needs. Uh, Instead of of loving his wife or, or women, he uses women. Instead of leading women, men abdicate their role of a servant leader and leave women in the wind. And these are all parts of the fall, not as God created it. When God created Adam and Eve, it was part and counterpart made in the image of God to be a blessing to each other. And what we see in human history is not that. So God is calling us to something higher and better within our relationships. Uh, the other thing that we see is that man's work would uh, to provide would be made difficult rather than joyful. Um, that the reward of work would be less and less. Uh, we see that food sources are not consistent, causing famines and disease and Plagues and things like that. When we've gone through the book of Revelation, when we look at the bowls of wrath, they're acts of the curse plagues, famines, political unrest because there's not enough food for people, all these different economic things that happen. Those are a result of the curse. Physical death becomes our end and we return to the dust. So our end is physical death. Spiritual death is our beginning as we're born into a sinful world by sinful parents. That the headship, federal headship is an idea within scripture that all humanity enters the world in a sinful state because they are in Adam's line. And that's why we needed the second man, Jesus Christ, to show up, the new Adam who, who does not have sin nature. And what happens when we are born again is we're born into a new spiritual family, out of a sinful broken family into a righteous holy family, not with the, the first man, Adam, as our head, but as Christ as our head. He becomes the head of our family that we're a part of. And So God saves us. The other thing that we see here is there are two promises within the curse. The first one is that the woman would have a child that would crush the serpent's head. The serpent is representative of Satan. As we've gone through the book of Revelation, that's actually a name that's been given to Satan, the serpent of old. Um, So the woman would have a child that would crush the serpent while being struck by the serpent. And so this is the first prophecy of the Messiah, that there would be one who would come, who would crush the serpent, who would crush Satan, and in the process, he would be struck by the serpent. And so we see that as very obviously Jesus dying on the cross. He is crushing Satan's power, overcoming the sin and rebellion that is in with each one of us. But he's also receiving this blow that was intended for us this physical death that was due to us because of our sin. Uh, the other promise that's made within the within Genesis 3 there is a sacrificial system is given that points forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the end of that chapter, God kills a couple of animals and he clothes Adam and Eve with their skins. And that was the beginning of the sacrificial system. It's interesting, when you read the Bible, the sacrificial system doesn't receive definition until you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. But there are sacrifices throughout the Old Testament prior to that. When Noah gets off the boat, he makes an animal sacrifice. He was actually instructed to carry the right kinds of animal on the ark so that he could make sacrifices when it was done. Um, So we don't get the very definition for these things until later books, but the sacrificial system is going on right from the Garden of Eden. And so mankind knows right from the beginning that God has a plan to save them from their sin, that it's going to require someone or something else to die on their behalf for their sin, because the wages of sin is death. And we know that Jesus Christ is the one who died once and for all for our sins. The sacrificial system pointed forward to Jesus' once and for all death so that we could be saved. So the curse, it has all these issues within it, but God also makes a promise, Uh, We see curse show up a few other times within the scriptures. A really interesting one is Jeremiah. He says, cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh, his strength, and his heart, his inner self, his disposition, turns from God. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. Now, from a religious perspective, we understand that there are many religions that would teach you that your role before God is to work your way to him through your own self-effort, that you could reach righteousness, that you could attain it through your religious works. That's trusting in mankind. Jeremiah says that's cursed. That will not lead to life or salvation. And so anytime you put yourself under a group of laws and try to live up to those laws so that you could be right with God, you're cursing yourself. You're putting yourself in a position where you will fall, you will fail, you will not be saved. Uh, I had the opportunity to pray at the state legislature this week and I met some really neat people there, but I also did some background work on some of our state legislatures, those in the Senate. And these are people that secular humanism is their worldview. It is the approach that they're taking towards law. It is the approach that they're taking towards, uh, their role as a Senator is secular humanism. Well, what does the scripture say? That that's Cursed. So any law that they come up with, any effort that they make, even if it's well-intended, if it doesn't recognize God, it will not bring what people are looking for. We will not attain wholeness as human beings until Christ is central. And that's what heaven is teaching. That's what Revelation chapter 22 is teaching about heaven. That Christ is central and everyone's heart is centered on him. And so whatever choice we make, it's driven from him being preeminent. And so any, 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 step that we take, any action that we make, any thought that we think, we want Christ to be first. Because if he's not, it results in a curse. Uh, Jeremiah goes on and he says, he will be like a juniper in a desert land. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. In other words, when we try to attain perfection through merely human efforts, it results in a dry desert place without life. And that's true of us spiritually. That's true of us as a nation. That's true of us as a state. Until Christ is first, it will not be all that it can be. He goes on a little bit further. He says, the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is in the Lord, is blessed. Is it curse or bless? Is it a cursing or a blessing? He would like, be like a tree planted by the water, sends out roots towards the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. That's a really interesting statement because essentially what Jeremiah is saying is that we as followers of God have become trees of life. That, that as our roots reach out into the living water, which is Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, you are a tree of life. And, and what we should be on this earth that we live on is we should be producing fruit. That's what Jesus says in John 15, that if we're connected to the vine, we'll bear much fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But if we're connected to him, then the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, those are going to be flowing out of us and they're going to be blessing the people around us. We would be therapeutic, bringing wholeness to our communities when we act and live with our roots connected to Christ. And so that's what God has for the Christian here on this earth right now, but it is obviously um, really something else in the new heaven and the new earth. And so what Revelation chapter 21 and 22 promises an end to the curse, and the, the way that the curse ends is it's upon the removal of sin and all who delight in rebellion against God by trusting in humanistic effort to better themselves and the world. Okay, so it's very fundamental that we understand that the the world system around us would not recognize God and think that we as humans can figure this out. As Christians, we say, it'll never work. I cannot better myself by my own efforts. Not really. I can't make my family better by my own efforts. I can't make my work performance better by my own efforts. I I can't figure out my finances by my own effort. I can't, there's nothing I can do apart from Christ. And so I need my roots deep in him. And so this perfection, it's more than we can fathom or imagine, yet it is exactly what our hearts truly desire. The next thing that we see here is that those who... Uh, are in Christ and are in this new heaven and new earth, they will see his face, verse four, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now we've seen this name on the foreheads thing before, right? Remember, those who are there are those who take the mark of the beast and they have the mark of the beast on their foreheads. And when we talked about that, remember this was talking about someone's countenance, their approach to life. Um, and so uh, they, they don't believe that they need God. They're following a false religious system and a false worldly political season, uh, system. They believe that humanity can figure this, out on their own and make the world better, that we don't need God, right? So that's the mark of the beast living without God as though he doesn't exist or that we need him. Uh, The mark that they have here is they have the name of Christ on their forehead. And so this is saying that their countenance, that their approach to life, hopefully this is true of us right now as Christians, that our countenance, our approach to life says, God, I need you. I trust you. I want you every moment of every day. I want you to reveal sin to me in my life and I want you to clean it up. I want you to transform me from the image of a fallen, broken man into the image of your son, Jesus. I know that you're going to do this for me little by little. I want you to cause me to love my wife better than I ever could on my own. I want you to cause me to work my job to the best of my ability for your glory. I want you to lead me to raise my children in a way that that I could never do on my own. I want the Spirit of God controlling all aspects of my life. I want to be a student in in my school that is honoring you and uplifting the name of Jesus, not afraid to speak what I believe, but boldly and lovingly sharing who Jesus is within the classroom that I'm in. And I'm going to do this within my friend groups. I'm going to do this on my sports team, right? He's going to call us out and make us different. And that's what it is to have the name of Christ written on our foreheads. And this next thing, I don't know if we can fully grasp this. It says they will see his face. Um, And to see the face of God is something that none of us have ever done nor ever deserved to do. Um, Moses, in Exodus 33, was told that he could not see God's face and live. And so God allows Moses to see his back. And even seeing his back, Moses comes off the mountain, and his face is shining with God's glory. Being in God's presence is transformative to Moses, it's transformative to us, and it causes his glory to shine off of us. Uh, but, But to see his face, he couldn't do that and live. Paul described God's glory as unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now Paul had Jesus appear to him on the road to Damascus. And you remember what happens? There's a bright light, he's blinded. And that is the blinding light. It's it's Christ, it's his glory, it's it's his the, the very essence of who he is, the amazing, awesome God that Jesus Christ is. His, his glory, it's its almost, it's too much for us to take in. In fact, in the transfiguration, uh, the disciples go up on the mountain, three go, get to go up on the mountain with Jesus and the transfiguration takes place and they see Jesus in all of his deified glory and they see Moses and Elijah and, and Peter looks at it and he goes, this is so awesome, let's set up tents and stay here forever. And then as he's taking in God's glory, he goes, I can't do this anymore. And it says that he fell asleep. He passes out at the sight of God's glory so this is really something that in the New heaven it says we're going to see God's face um, Ezekiel fell on his face when he was in God's presence and Daniel did the same Isaiah considered himself ruined when he glimpsed God's glory he said "I'm a people I'm a person of unclean lips from a from a people of unclean lips and I am doomed help me and God goes. You want help? I'm gonna have an angel take a coal. He's gonna bring it to your mouth and he's going to cleanse you and you're gonna say what I need you to say. God is so faithful to forgive and cleanse when we recognize our brokenness. And that's so important for you to hear this morning because as a Christian, you may be struggling with sin and the first thing that we need to do with sin is we confess it to God. If you're in a loop, a cycle where sin has a hold of you and you're practicing the same thing you don't want to practice over and over again, as Paul says, wretched man that I am who will free me from this bondage of sin. Well, in the next chapter, he realizes that the spirit of God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which doesn't exist will give his mortal flesh life. And so God is doing this for you as a Christian. If you're caught in sin, you confess it for what it is. You recognize that Jesus has paid for it. You seek close, intimate, meaningful relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, through his word, through prayer, through community of believers, and you allow God to transform you. You seek it. You seek the transformation. But if you're not saved, listen to me. He so wants to forgive. He's already forgiven you. He's he's already stepped on an iPad. He's already forgiven you. He's already forgiven you. He's already taken care of it on the cross. He's already allowed you to be free from sin and to be cleansed. And so what he's saying to you this morning through his word, through the spirit which is speaking through me, I pray that he wants you to be saved and if you say, Jesus Christ, I trust in your death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. I trust in your death on the cross. I trust your burial and I believe that you are raised from the dead, then you will be saved. If you make that decision this morning, I want you to, when the service is over, I want you to go back to the info booth and I want you to talk to Tammy or Josh and they want to tell you what are next steps to follow Jesus, okay? Because that's who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the fullness of deity. He's the only begotten God from the Father's side that has explained God. And those who know him are promised peace with God you'd like to be at peace with God, I just respond to that prayer and go talk to someone. The last thing we see in this chapter is night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And so what these last verses promise here, this last verse, it promises that God's people will walk in light and live as servants who reign with Christ forever. Listen to me, whatever hurt, loss, defeat, disease, sin pattern, shortcoming, unmet longing of your heart, or other negative experience you've had in this life, if you are in Christ, you will know no such pain in the life to come. He has promised that you will be freed from that. The other thing that I want you to know is that as Christians, we are not promised that Now, we're going to go through difficulty, we're going to go through struggle, we're going to experience strife, we're going to experience trials and tribulations, we're going to go through things in life. But what the scriptures teach about our time here on earth and the trials and tribulations that we go through is that we should actually look for those in order that God could develop character in us so that we could have hope knowing that what he's promised will come true. So we don't shy away from trials and tribulations, but we say, God, thank you for this difficulty that's in my life. It's revealing sin, it's revealing you, it's transforming me into the image of your son. And so this is a promise that you can bank your eternity on, but it also gives purpose and hope to your life today. Um, I wanna close by reading you a a prayer out of a book called uh, 50 Days in Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's a a devotional and... uh, probably the most accessible book on your handout as far as digging into a little bit more about what heaven is. But but bow your head and pray with me or you can read it as I read it. And so Father, we pray to you right now and we say, Father, would you fill us with the wonder of being able to see you face to face to walk beside your son and behold his eternally human and divine face. What a delight to gaze at you, the source of all good, all beauty, all mystery. And what an incomparable experience to not only imagine, but one day actually see your face. You who spun the galaxies into existence, who wove together the earth with its animals and oceans and forests and flowers, who created us in your glorious image. May we never lose sight of our highest destiny to see you. And may we pass that vision to those around us, including our children and our grandchildren. And so, Father, we do ask this that you would give us a wonder of your faith, your face, seeing your face. And Father, we also understand that seeing your face is not about an eye as you know, eyes and nose and facial features, but it's about your character, your glory, uh, the unapproachable light that comes out of who you are. It's your goodness, it's your love sacrificing your son on our behalf so that we could be saved. It's your justice paying for sin once and for all. It's your grace making us new creations in Christ. It's your spirit given to us to indwell us and change our minds in the way that we approach life. Uh, Seeing your face is something that in one way we can do now because you've revealed yourself to us through your son Jesus and through the scriptures. But we do long for your return For this new heaven and this new earth, this city that you're preparing for us. So God, give us a vision of what that is and move us forward to share that with others, inviting them into your family. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.